Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Rupert Murdoch is stepping down as chairman of Fox and News Corp. We'll see how long that lasts. Because we've <laughs> seen the show. We've seen Succession. We know how this goes. We have a fantastic show for you today. Michael Wolf joins us to talk about his new book, The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. Then we'll talk to pollster Ben Tulchin about how Biden can adopt a populist message to do better with the voters he struggles with. But first, we have Squawk Box contributor and host of On the Tape, my friend and yours, Dan Nathan. Welcome back, my friend, Dan Nathan, to Fast Politics. Molly, it's great to be back with you. Let's talk about the economy, the Goldilocks economy. So is the economy good or bad? Well, it depends in which lens you're looking through, right? So if you have a job um, and you benefit from basically wage growth that we've seen over the last few years, I think it's been pretty good, right? But the flip side of that is like, you know, inflationary pressures have been around now for a couple of years. And, you know, that is the very thing that U.S. Federal Reserve is trying to combat. It's also one of the reasons why the Biden administration named their fiscal uh, spending policy last year, the Inflation Reduction Act. I think you and I have spent some time talking about that. I'm not really sure that that 
that kind of battles high inflation. If anything, it could be inflationary. And it could be the very situation that we're in right now. You know, you'll hear that term Goldilocks a bunch. What does it mean? It means that, you know, we have, you know, 70 year low unemployment. We have wage growth that we haven't seen in a long time, but we also have a whole host of other costs for lots of consumers that maybe wages are not keeping up with, right? So to answer the question, it's not a great economy for kind of lower end wage earners right now, despite the benefits that they've had of late, okay? But on the higher end, I mean, it seems like in every which way, you know, the higher end consumer is doing just fine. Um, So some of the stuff that we track fairly closely is the savings rate that was really high, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic is being drawn down. Consumer credit is really high at a time, and this brings us back to inflation, where the U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates basically from a zero interest rate bound during the pandemic to about five and a half percent. We have not seen interest rates this high in a very, very long time. So if you are a consumer and you are living paycheck to paycheck, okay, and you are buying a lot of stuff on credit and these are floating rates, they're astronomically high right now. And so, you know, there's a whole host of things that I think as we settle into and the Federal Reserve said it to us this week, that rates are going to be higher for longer. I think the lag effects of that tighter monetary policy are going to first hit lower end consumers, and then it's going to work its way into the middle and higher, you know, kind of bounds in the consumer landscape. And so to me, I think that is a story for 2024. And through the lens that you look at all this, Molly, it's not, in my opinion, a great setup if you are the incumbent president, in my opinion, because sooner or later, the economy is going to slow and we're going to be in a recession. And, you know, I'm sure the Biden administration is hoping it's uh, comes after the election. But at some point, I think the market is a discounting mechanism and will sniff it out if the economy is going to weaken. So you think we're heading for a recession. It's just a question of when. But I don't understand because of the higher interest rates sooner or later, though the Fed did just not raise interest rates yesterday. They did. And so one of the big issues is that this lag effect of monetary policy. Right. And so they acknowledge that economists acknowledge that. And so here we are. They started raising interest rates in March of 2022. So we're about 18 months. And, And normally when you have that sort of tightening of monetary policy, you will see the economy start to weaken. That was the goal of raising interest rates, to cool off the economy. If the economy continued to go in gangbusters pace because of all the fiscal and monetary stimulus, we're ultimately going to have a bubble inflate and then crash. And you don't have to go too far back to remember the global financial crisis where interest rates were kept too low for too long to combat what we had as a recession post the dot-com bubble, right? right? And so in each of those instances, they were followed by market crashes where the the S&P 500, the major U.S. equity market, was cut in half, okay? And then we also had recessions. And so I think the Fed fears that, and you hear all this talk about a soft landing or a no landing, a hard landing would be a very bad recession. I think the Fed is trying to wrap, you know, kind of wrap their arms around, how do we get to a soft landing where the tighter monetary policy kind of slows the economy, but doesn't break the economy and push us into a hard recession. I want to go further on this monetary policy idea, because there are people who blame Biden. And if you blame Biden for this, you also have to blame Trump for this, because this is something Trump did, too, that we have had 
years and years and years of like printing money, of pushing money into the economy, of very cheap money, of this modern monetary theory, which says, just go for it. Nothing's going to happen. So how much of this is a blowback from that? I will say this, that President Trump brought in the current Fed chair, Jerome Powell, okay, to be his pick. And this was in back in 2017. And Fed chair Powell started out by raising interest rates in 2018. And, you know, he was trying to normalize interest rate policy after years and years of easy monetary policy that came with the financial crisis, right? So here, Jerome Powell is under President Biden and, you know, interest rates have gone up faster than they have on any administration in decades, okay? So now all of a sudden, you have this situation, though, I think the Biden administration is probably correct to identify the fact that if they were to kind of support a pullback in rates, that inflation could be a worst enemy than high interest rates, right? So right, they're in right. a really difficult situation here. And it does become political as we get into 2024, because every week we are going to have candidates on the right that are going to be kind of railing against whatever that uh, Fed Chair Powell's doing. They're going to say it's perfect. Um, political. They're going to say that the former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, who is now Biden's treasury secretary, right, is in bed with the Fed and the Fed is supposed to be an independent organization. So this is going to get very politicized very soon. And going back to what I said before is that if you think that, you know, a stronger economy has been a good thing for this administration, I'd say yes, but he's not getting any credit for it. That's President Biden. If you just look at the polling on the economy, it's really bad. And so I don't know if it gets better from here, which is why I think that that whole campaign that they had a couple months ago with Bidenomics and getting him out there and his folks, you know, and I think the last time we talked, they need to do a better job on this because if the economy is okay right now and we are not in recession and it's been able to withstand the sort of interest rate uh, hikes that have happened over the last 18 months, then there's a story to tell with unemployment as low as it is right now. So to me, I think there's a whole host of great things that they could be talking about. And then the re- shoring of a lot of jobs that are incentivized by a lot of stuff in this fiscal, you know, plans that they kind of laid out last year and the IRA and stuff, those are all good for U.S. workers, but they're also inflationary because one of the worst sort of, I think, takes about the last 50 years with globalization is that, you know, we got, as consumers, you know, we got addicted to cheap goods. And if that's going to be reversing out of China, it's going to be inflationary and better be prepared to pay more for your iPhone and some other things that are going to be made in other places closer to home. Yes, for sure. And I mean, that's the fundamental thing that people are so upset about is paying more for things, right? Like people in America do not like paying more for things. Well, I mean, listen, it goes back in the Trump administration when they started this trade war with China. I mean, it was really interesting in a way is that a lot of folks or a lot of people that support him didn't realize that they were supporting something that worked against their best interests, right? When steel prices are more expensive and you are, uh, you know, a, an auto worker, you know, and um, less cars are being sold because the prices are higher, you know, this all happens to come back. And and, and so if, if plants have to close because there's less demand for things, I mean, these are all the fundamental, you know, 
economic issues that that we have to deal with. And when you map them to politics and when you have people like the last administration who surely have no idea about much of this, you know, it gets really sloppy. Now, you could make the case that the Biden administration has been as hard or harder on China. So like the situation with China only gets worse from here also. And I'll just tell you, a lot of folks that are involved in markets, um, I mean, this is the number one bugaboo, if you will, um, China and kind of decoupling from China. And I don't think whoever wins in 2024 and whoever takes the Senate, I don't think anything changes in that regard. It seems to be fairly bipartisan. And, and I'll tell you that the other thing that, you know, it might not be under the radar for too long. The fact that our neighbors to the north are in this big brouhaha with India. India is supposed to beneficiary of kind of, you know, moving away from China. And if the North America is is in a, a bit of a row with two and a half trillion, as far as populace, you know what I mean, between India and China, um, we, we might be headed to what looks like a, a more bipolar world as it relates to just kind of um, geopolitics and, and economics and globalization. With China, one of the things the Biden administration has been doing is they've been quietly trying to sort of shore up that relationship, but also shore up Japan, South Korea, the other countries on that peninsula or near that, you know, in that area who are useful if you need to kind of go against China. I mean, it feels like we're at an uneasy detente with China. Very uneasy. I mean, it doesn't get better from here, as I said before, because, you know, at some point, uh, all indications are that they're going to make some sort of move on Taiwan. And it could start out as some sort of economic sort of blockade. It could be something militarily. I mean, some of the exercises that they're running right now, those are the sorts of things that obviously make the Japanese and the South Koreans very nervous. And when you think about China and you think about North Korea, how they've been cozying up to Russia, who just invaded, obviously, last year, a sovereign neighbor of theirs, a lot of these things are really intertwined, right? And so, you know, when I think about China is like the multinationals, U.S. multinational companies and the precedent that they set when Russia rolled into Ukraine by pulling out of Russia, you know, is that going to be the map? Is that going to be the playbook for U.S. multinationals if the Chinese do anything with Taiwan? And when you think about China as being this engine for global growth over the last 20 years, the economic data in China right now is really bad. Export data is really bad. They're facing bouts of deflation right now. So if they, in an effort to kind of re-stimulate you know, whatever sort of activity, and they see Taiwan as a good way to do it, um, you know, U.S. multinationals, Japan and, and South Korea, you know, are very staunch allies. We're going to be in a bit of a pickle, and that is the sort of thing that could send the global economy into a really bad place, especially if you think that we will have a redo of the inflationary pressures on natural resources. You know, remember what happened with oil after Russia invaded Ukraine. So those are, you know, China is a huge, you know, buyer of natural resources and crude and the like and natural gas. So, you know, there's all this stuff is kind of interrelated, and, and it makes a lot of people, you know, a, away from the human aspect of it, and I think that obviously is not something that we should kind of poo-poo, but from an economic standpoint and from a geopolitical standpoint, I mean, this is the this is the one thing I think that has the ability to really kind of um, break the economy right now at a time where interest rates, again, have only been going higher to deal with inflation. And all of what I just said is inflationary, deglobalization, and then geopolitical rows between, you know, China and Taiwan or Russia and Ukraine. That's very annoying. But can China kick 
the rest of the world into a recession? Is that what you're painting? Yeah, I, I think it does have the potential to do that, right? So where is the incremental growth that that could happen around the globe? Right now, Europe is in a you know recessionary sort of environment. Right, and England is, forget it. Yeah, England is not particularly great here. And so when you think about what is the kind of knock-on effect of U.S. consumers are basically 70% of our GDP, our gross domestic product here. And if the U.S. consumer were to slow down because interest rates are too high, because you know they're not going to tap home equity loans with you know mortgage rates you know, above 7%. If floating rates on credit, which is hitting for consumers all-time highs right now, is just not sustainable to continue this level of growth, I mean, it's going to be really hard, right? Like to keep our economy humming along. So the idea of a recession that's two consecutive negative quarters of GDP, that's not so hard. And it's not even that bad of a thing. Those are, they're natural cycles in in economies here, right? But the fact that we've become so interrelated with, let's say, Europe and with China. And if China is weakening and Europe is already weak and there's a potential for, you know, some major hiccups as it relates to our manufacturing in China, like to me, I just don't know how we avoid a recession in the next year or so. And if you would ask me a year ago at this time, I would have said in 2023, but the longer we kick the can down the road, the more unstable our U.S. consumer is. And if our U.S. consumer is literally the engine behind our economic growth, with China weakening at a time where we're diversifying away from China, it's just not a great picture right now. So I wish, I know you said it's annoying. I wish I had a rosier outlook. And if you want to talk about Goldilocks, that's great. That's backward looking. If you look at a lot of the leading indicators for the economy, they're softening right now. So interesting. So let me ask you, what could the Biden administration do Yeah. I mean, at this point, I I don't think, you know, more fiscal stimulus is the right thing. That will cause more inflation. And, you know, like when you think about polls and you think about the sorts of things that like voters, when they're going to vote, you know, I mean, what do they care about? They care about their economic stability. They care about their job and that sort of thing. And a lot of these other issues that will help, I, I think, define the 2024 election, guns and abortion and immigration. I think they're a sideshow if you feel like you, you know, have to make a choice between feeding your family and and paying your heating bill, or you think you're going to be, you know, losing your job and tuition has become too expensive and healthcare is too... So they have to control the narrative better. I think they've done a very poor job um, at doing that. They need more, you know, people out there telling the story how U.S. consumers are doing better than they were four years ago and the like. And I just don't think they're good at that. Again, I don't think more fiscal stimulus would do the sort of thing, but some sort of good resolution with this United Auto Worker where Right. The government is like helpful, I think, would be really good because that is a voting, you know, block that I think is should be important to the Biden being reelected. Um, so I think there's just being more upfront about these issues and how this is not going to be an easy situation to tame because inflation is not going down meaningfully anytime soon and interest rates are likely to have to stay higher for longer. That's at least what the Fed's telling. The only way interest rates go down a lot, they're not going to be good for good economic reasons. They've gone down in the post.com recession, and then they went down in the period during the financial crisis. We don't want any of those sorts of situations happen. So if they can kind of thread the needle a little bit and, and kind of get to the other side of 2024 without having to do anything dramatic, I think they just have to control the narrative better. And that's why they didn't raise rates again. I think what the Fed is saying to us, and, and this has nothing to do with the administration. I mean, the administration right. can try to put pressure on them, but they, they, you know, they are independent of the administration. 
Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, the former, the head of the Fed, I mean, she can be as political as she wants, but she cannot try to do things to influence the U.S. Fed. So they didn't raise interest rates because they wanted to take a pause. Now, the likelihood is that they raise interest rates at the next meeting in November, another 25 basis points, getting the Fed funds rate to 5.75%. That shouldn't have a too dramatic of impact on the economy, especially after they've just raised 5.5% over the last 18, 19 months or so. But the point here is is that they're going to watch the data. And if the data continues to be inflationary, then they need to have tighter monetary policy. But if the data falls off a cliff and gets much worse, that's a whole host of other problems, and especially politically for the Biden administration. So I think if they could freeze things right here, right now, and flash forward to the November 2024, I think they would do that. But the likelihood that things stay static right now is not particularly great. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate being on the pod. I love the pod. And uh, I'm amazed at which you do nine A-plus interviews a week on Fast Politics. It's just beyond me. So keep it up. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Michael Wolf is the author of The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. Welcome to Fast Politics, Michael Wolf. Molly, thank you for having me. 
Thank you for coming on. This is a hot, hot book. Have you gotten a copy of it? I have a copy, but I Great. just got it, so I haven't finished it. Let's talk about first, you've written a lot of books. You have written about a lot of politicians and people, and why did you pick this? I haven't written about a lot of politicians. I really don't like to write about politicians. I have written about Donald Trump, who I would say is um, right, distinguished true. by not being a politician. I think that's a good point. But I have written a lot about Rupert Murdoch. Um, so I have been writing about Rupert Murdoch since uh, when was my Murdoch biography published in 2009. And before that, I was New York Magazine's media reporter and Vanity Fair's media reporter. So I often wrote about Murdoch. And then Murdoch let me in for some, some reason that I'm sure he can't explain, nor can I let me into his world uh, very quite intimately. And I spent a year basically interviewing him, his family, his executives, anybody I wanted to, including his mother. So I have been writing about him on a fairly steady basis since then. And this is kind of, you know, a bookend. I mean, it, it is ending. I mean, Murdoch is 92. And the end comes even to him sooner rather than later. The curious point of this story is that that end will take Fox, arguably the most powerful political influence in this country, his end will take Fox with it. You can't take Fox with you. Right. You can't take Fox. So you really do think that the death of Rupert Murdoch will be the end of Fox News? Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't think that there's, that there's any piece of logic that could find an alternative to that. It ends because this is a company that is really exists because of one man. And he has children who will take over control of the company, four children, yes, six children, but there are four who will take over. Uh, they do not agree with each other on, and their disagreements kind of approach the mortal level. It's a blood score between them. And there's virtually no scenario in which they can go forward in agreement. So tell me what you think Rupert Murdoch will think of this book if he has not gotten it yet. That's an interesting thing, because when the Murdoch organization doesn't like something, it responds with, or at least in my experience, responds with a unique kind of venom. After my biography of Murdoch was published, which he did not like at all, which I always found somewhat curious because it's really not a negative biography. When he got a copy of it, he called me up in a furor. I tried to get him to tell me what, what he objected to, and he, he finally sputtered out, um, but it's just so personal. <laughs> and I said, but Rupert, it's a biography. At, at any rate, he, he didn't like it, and part of his response ended up being quite painful for me because my marriage was then breaking up at that point, and I was involved with someone else, which nobody else knew, except the New York Post found out. They went out of their way, shall we say, to find out, and raked me through for weeks, or certainly what felt like weeks on end. I was hardly a celebrity, was treated as a celebrity with outrageous marital difficulties. And, and anyway, it was it was terrible. So, I would like to say I am poised now, but I am not poised. And I and I and I really I really can't imagine what is going to come my way. But I would not be surprised if it was some serious stuff. 
So what do you think is the thing that's going to make him the most enraged? I mean, it's personal. This is about his family. I mean, this is about Fox, too. It's not just about his family. I mean, it's about the personalities at Fox, which has its own problems. I mean, there's the Fox is, has problems with the Murdoch families, but it has problems with Donald Trump, who the Murdochs hate, but Fox's audience love. It has problems with its various personalities. The whole Tucker Carlson story is is laid out here. I would safely say that there's not one single thing that Rupert Murdoch is going to like about this book. <laughs> Talk to me about Laura Ingram. There's some very interesting stuff in here. I think I, I kind of feel sorry for Laura. You know, Fox is a very difficult place, to say the least, for a woman to work. I mean, it was particularly difficult in the age of Roger Ailes, but it hasn't gotten much better. I don't think that they necessarily jump on you there anymore, but they certainly don't treat women like they treat men. And I think Laura Ingraham has been put in a very difficult difficult position. And there's a lot of reasons that she would want this job and does want this job, but is her heart in it? And, you know, that's one of the, the interesting things about, about Fox and why, it's, why it has done so well is that its stars have their heart in it. They are fully invested in being Fox people, in talking to the Fox audience. And I think she's been a little resistant to this, reticent about it, although she has tried. Curiously, you know, she's one of Murdoch's favorites, and she's one of his favorites because she's actually not a Trump mega right winger. She's kind of an old fashioned, a 90s right winger, which Murdoch is. But there's a lot about her drinking, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, well, and she's not the only drinker at, at Fox. It's a big drinking place. The Murdoch family is a big drinking family. But yeah, I mean, and there's there's a particular scene in... Um, the scene with the plane. Will you talk about that? I tell the story of a trip on Sean Hannity's plane to Roger Ailes's funeral in the spring of 2017. And Laura was, who was not working at Fox at the time, but wanted to work at Fox at the time, was at the funeral. And she got very, very drunk. I mean, one of those kind of drunken scenes that is a kind of television-worthy drunken scene. The full Monty of <laughs> drunkenness. Um and so much so that that she tried to get a ride uh, with Hannity on, on his plane back to New York. She wanted to be dropped off in Washington, but Hannity wouldn't let her on the plane because he said those planes are too small for someone who would clearly end up in the bathroom vomiting <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> that is not the only time she gets rejected. The Murdoch sons found her retro not inspiring. Talk to me about that. When she was hired, that was a kind of tussle between, between father and sons about who would get to make this hire. And it was actually Rupert who finally decided to make this, this hire. And the, and the sons were, were annoyed about this and, and regarded her as kind of an old-fashioned conservative who was um, in an old-fashioned, you know, a, a person whose sell-by date as a media personality had passed. Right. But she has really hung on. I mean, what do you think about that? She was the only woman in the lineup and she was kind of convenient 
in the lineup between the two big enchiladas of the primetime schedule who didn't want someone else who might compete with them. So she was a, a, a sort of convenient buffer for Tucker and for Hannity. But now she has just been relegated out of official prime time. There's so many personalities in this book and there's so much for Rupert Murdoch to just like. When liberals, such as I suppose ourselves, write about Fox, it's always written as the overriding point is politics. And, and I've tried to make this the overriding point here, television, that it's really not, you know, Fox is not. Yes, there's politics at Fox and yes, that's the subtext, but the overt text is how do I stay on the air? I am, a t you know, like all television people, I mean, what, what do all television news people have in common? This desperate desire and need to stay on the air. And it's a, I will do anything to stay on the air. That's this motivation that I, that I tried to, I try to convey that unique experience. And it's really about the family, which is really interesting. Before we talk about Tucker Carlson, we need to talk about Arena Briganti. Please tell our listeners who she is and sort of she is really one of the most important figures in anything about Fox. She's the PR person. But what that means, you know, she comes out of the Ailes era, is that she is the enforcer. If I get hit by the Murdochs in any way, it will come from her. She is the one who is out there selling the Fox message to other media, but she is punishing anyone who crosses, who Fox feels has crossed them. She's, I mean, super good at her job. One interesting aspect is that she often uses the New York Times to do this, which is, seems counterintuitive since the New York Times hates Fox so much. But since she is often dissing people who are on Fox, then the Times becomes a willing and convenient outlet. So I was, for, again, reasons that are not necessarily clear or intuitive, I was very friendly with Roger Ailes for many, many years. I was friendly with him because he was a great source, because he was a great gossip, because he had really unique insights into into the media business, which I was covering for much of much of that time. On one occasion, I can't remember what I was writing about, but I I didn't call him. I called the Fox PR people. And he got wind of this and he called me up and he said, Why 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 wouldn't you call me if you want to know what happens? Don't call Irina. Her job is not to tell you the truth. It's the opposite of her job. <laughs> you want to know something, you call me. It's amazing. So talk to me about the Dominion case, because that was like a very sort of will they or won't they settle situation. It always seemed that way. There was no possibility that they were not going to settle this. You know, the first rule of any media company in a libel or defamation case is never go before a jury. You go before a jury, you're going to lose. But they got awfully close to going before a jury. I mean, I was actually sitting there. I was face to face with that with that jury shortly after, you know, and I believe it would have been right after the lunch break, the jury was seated. There was a lunch break and then the lunch break was prolonged and then they settled. 
because of that immutable rule that was this. This was the line in the sand. You could not face the jury. And so the real story is how in hell did it get that close when they should have settled months and months and months and months and months before. There was a moment, would think it would be about a year and a half before, when Murdoch was complaining that this could cost him $50 million. Now, in the (laughs) end, and it cost him $785 million. That's the story. Why did it take so long? And that's the indication of, of the kind of disarray that was going on within the organization. So you think they just couldn't get it together in time? Yes. I mean, they couldn't get it together. And I would say it was, there was and continues to be only one real decision maker, and that's Murdoch, and he is 92. So getting him to make decisions, I think, is very difficult. I think getting him to focus becomes more and more difficult. I think that he processed this whole suit as being not Fox's fault, but Donald Trump's fault. And in some way, this became about about Donald Trump paying for this. And somehow it became about his grievance against Donald Trump instead of focusing on the fact that this lawsuit was directed at him, in fact. The Tucker Carlson-Fox fight continues. It does. It's probably an indication of an even broader fight that's happening and that's going to happen in conservative media. You know, for a long time, Fox has been had a monopoly position in conservative media. There was only one outlet and it was dominant to a dramatic extreme. And I think now we see more and more that there are other possibilities here and that conservative media will fragment, and this shouldn't be a surprise, in the same way that liberal media has fragmented. So interesting. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you. Ben Tolchin is a pollster and the founder of Tolchin Research. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ben. Thank you for having me. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to us. Tell me about what you do. Sure. I'm a political pollster. I work for Democrats, helping get them elected. I also do ballot measures, work for issue clients, nonprofit organizations, labor unions, and those kinds of uh, clients. Best known for polling for Bernie Sanders, presidential campaign in 2016 and 2020. Also elected the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, for which I was named Pollster of the Year recently. So I work for lots of clients around the country as well, but those are kind of my claim to fame. So you're a Democratic pollster, but you have candidates that are sometimes not in the Democratic mainstream. As a consultant, I work for candidates who I like to try to what I work for, but they tend to be kind of a broad ideological mix. Yes. Let's talk about what the nuts and bolts of pollstering looks like for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, one, we have to get hired by a candidate. Right. <laughs> and we have to get paid. But uh, no, in all seriousness, it doesn't always happen. But the industry itself, polling, has gone under a lot of changes and transformations the last several years. I yeah. mean, a lot, lot's been discussed about there are fewer people willing to respond to surveys. We used to call landlines. Those don't really exist anymore. So now we have to find other ways to reach people through cell phones, texting, calling cell phones, email, you name it. So the industry's changed a lot. It's gotten harder to do what I do, but my value add as a pollster and a strategist, I really pride myself 
for being a strategist. I don't just deliver poll numbers, I provide strategy. And that's kind of my value add. And, you know, I've been instrumental in, uh, you know, taking uh, Bernie Sanders from zero to percent to the brink of the nomination. I was instrumental electing Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, in a very difficult, uh, diverse, uh, multi-candidate field with ranked choice voting scenarios. So, um, so my job is to not just tell you what the numbers are, but like figure out a strategy of how to win. But you also do focus groups. We do. Yes, we do. And lately you've been doing focus groups. Tell us what you've been sort of working on and the stuff that you have been talking to my friend Ron Brownstein about. Look, I mean, as we kind of heading into a presidential election year and having worked for Bernie and I've seen kind of a clear pattern emerge where Democratic Party has struggled with working class voters, right? And they've struggled in delivering an economic message. And that was clear with the driver of success for Bernie's campaign in both 2016 and 2020 was he had a very clear, powerful, progressive economic populist message. And I feel the Democratic Party's kind of hasn't learned the lessons from that, why Bernie was successful. Many people in the party view him as this kind of left-wing crazy guy. And the fact is that he actually has a very clear coherent economic message that resonated very powerfully with young people and Latinos in particular. And that drove his success. And and those are two groups, quite frankly, that Biden struggled with in 2020, that Bernie did much better than Biden within those two groups. And it didn't start off that way. With, with Latinos in particular, we were tied with Biden at the beginning of the campaign. And over the course of the campaign, through a very disciplined, focused economic message, we gained separation from Biden and ultimately ran circles around him. And that's where we were able to win Nevada, win California, and do quite well with Latinos. So I've seen that. And then I did a really fascinating project of left-leaning gun owners. I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk to you about Latino voters, because that is the two really the weak spots for Democratic re-election are the young voters and the Latino voters, right? Especially Latino men, male voters, right? That is a number that Biden is losing and that the Republicans are picking up for whatever reason. For the people who are staunchly anti-Bernie who are listening to this podcast, and I know there are some of you, Bernie has already endorsed Biden. So that is done, right? He's not going to primary him period, paragraph. But Bernie had a bunch of really exciting progressive ideas like the Climate Corp. And that now Biden has just implemented, right? He's implemented two of Bernie's like key kind of things. I mean, do you think that there is a a way for, do you think that more successful messaging of that will help? And do you think that Biden did these things because he knows he needs those voters? Yeah, look, I mean, I know that Biden... Look, if you look at the polling, right, where he's in a lot, Biden's locked into a very close race with Trump, who's the likely Republican nominee. What I've been observing is having gone through the 2020 campaign, doing a lot of polling and watching, you know, Bernie do very well with the young people and Latinos and Biden struggle with them. They eventually rallied to Biden in the general election, but then three months into Biden's presidency, they they kind of left it, right? And, and just, and a lot of moved to kind of unsure, undecided, but they weren't sold on Biden at the beginning. They warmed up to him in a, as when it was a comparative a, a choice between Trump and Biden. But then they didn't show a lot of loyalty and then haven't stuck with them. Now, in looking at recent polling versus Biden versus Trump, you can say with Latinos, in exit polling in 2020, Biden won Latinos by 33 points, 65 to 32. 
in recent polling against Trump, Biden is only winning among Latinos by seven points, 45, 38, with a lot of undecided. That's not good, yeah. So there's a net 26-point drop-off. Young voters show a very similar pattern where Biden won them by 24 points, 60 to 36 in 2020, according to exit polling, and now he's only up three. So it's a dramatic shift. Now, my view is this should be low-hanging fruit for the Biden campaign. So to your point is he's focusing on them, embracing policies, advocating policies that young people support that Latino, that should, should be appealing to Latinos. But he's always struggled with these two groups. So it's going to take a lot of work for him to win them over, in my view. Talk to me about gun owners. Who exactly is in this group? So these are, you know, left-leaning gun owners, right? So if you right. think about where Trump has made inroads with working class voters and Biden and Democrats' expense, it's been, you know, versus Hillary and versus Biden. African-American men and and Latino men, right? So there's the two subsets that Trump has made some inroads with, and they're disproportionately working class, and they're disproportionately gun owners. So I've been working with the coalition trying to organize and connect with left-leaning gun owners after every mass shooting, right? There's obviously a rush for advocating for tougher gun safety laws, and the challenge of left-leaning gun owners is then they feel kind of, oh, do I belong in this party, right? So this effort is to kind of make them feel welcome voting for progressive candidates and causes, right? You know, we found is that they own guns. These folks own guns. They like owning guns. They're proud to be gun owners, right? So which is not a typical profile of today's, in today's Democratic Party, which has become more white collar professional, right? So, you know, they're disproportionately working class and many of them are struggling financially and they're really worried about the economy and we're more inclined to vote for Biden over Trump, but you don't have concerns, especially on on economic issues. So this is the group that is being affected by inflation the most. Yeah, our experience, if you look at kind of macroeconomics, macroeconomics in our research, I mean, young people and Latinos, these are the two groups that you know Biden is struggling with the most now compared to where he how he did in 2020. They have been deeply impacted by inflation, right? right. If you're a young person and people tend to make less money, they're early in their careers. And so if you're a young person and the you know groceries have gone up in costs and price of gas has gone up you feel, and rent has gone up, you feel that a lot. And uh, young people don't have any sort of historical perspective, right? right? They haven't been through inflation. This is new to them. Inflation is the first time they're really experiencing inflation. And they just know that A, things cost more and B, that Joe Biden is president, right? And so while they are left-leaning politically and voted for Biden in big numbers in 2020, you know, a lot of them have moved to the undecided column right now and a matchup between Biden and Trump. And they'll say, well, five years ago, we didn't have inflation. Today we have inflation. And so the, the Biden folks and Democratic Party has to go to young people and compel them to vote for Biden and tell them, A, a convincing economic message and B, why Donald Trump is really, really bad. Or not that they don't know that, but you just have to, in an election, it's a binary choice between two people. You got to remind them why they hate Donald Trump so that they vote for Joe Biden. Right, exactly. With student debt, are they mad about the student debt situation? And if so, who do they blame? They're frustrated for sure because it, it has a real impact. I mean, if yeah. you're well, uh, student debt payments, and interest rates just went up. Yes. No, so it, it's it's real. It's a real pocketbook issue and it's impactful in a real way. I mean, I think from polling we've done and others have done, 
they largely blame the Supreme Court and MAGA oh, and Republicans, but Biden's president, right? So, and, and he got it done, but they didn't get done. So that's the story that Biden's going to have to tell is explain, point, direct their anger at Donald Trump's Supreme Court, right? And say, look, this is the reason why your student loans payment forgiveness got thrown out. And I'm the one who stood up for you. So the challenge Biden has is he has to make the argument, right? He has to make the case uh, to them about why Donald Trump's bad for them and, and Joe Biden is, is stands up for their interests. So I think like one of the most interesting and useful things that I have been hearing about is that this polling is really sort of directional, right? This is what Biden needs to do over the next 400 plus days in order to win, right? Talk to us about the sort of like how Biden should take these polls. Yeah, I mean, he's got to make a concerted effort at targeting these groups in a way that's meaningful, authentic, and constantly, right? I mean, the, you know, younger voters and Latinos, and they lean left, they voted for him in 2020, and he's got to woo them and win them back. And I think, look, I think it's a multi-step process. I mean, he's got to lay out a positive message, a story to tell, which, look, people have a, their own personal economic experience. You know, the positive messaging about what he's done, the economy is going to have a limited impact, but he still has to tell that story, especially on student loan debt forgiveness, right? But then he's got to go destroy Donald Trump and just just savage Donald Trump. And he's starting to do that more. But that, that's one big critique I've had of the, of the Biden administration is he wouldn't even mention Donald Trump's name for the first two years. Right. And look, I mean, every good narrative, every good story has a villain, right? I mean, Star Wars is nothing without Darth Vader. Right. And their refusal to kind of engage Trump and MAGA Republicans consistently. I mean, they've started doing it now, but for two years, they they wouldn't even mention the other side, including Trump. And I just feel like the reason Biden got elected was if you look at exit polling, most people said it was a vote against Donald Trump, not a vote for Joe Biden. And maybe the Biden folks thought that, well, he could become president and be this inspirational figure. And he didn't. He's done an amazing job on policy. Accomplished a lot on a policy front. But I feel like he's he's always stronger when he's pitted against somebody else, right? right. Whether that's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or whomever. Biden does better when he is up against somebody else other than himself. And I just think that making the next year about why Donald Trump's a horrible person, president, and why he's bad for these voters in particular, and how Biden has made an effort to to do good by them. Right. I'm thinking about sort of this idea of populism, really like successful economic populism. One of the reasons why, and again, I don't want to relitigate because Bernie endorsed Biden and AOC endorsed Biden. But I, I want to say something about Biden, which is really about Bernie, which is that Bernie had this incredibly good economic populist message that was very compelling. It was Democrats speaking to working class voters in a way that Hillary could not. Because clearly, if you look at Biden's legislation, he has been an economic populist, right? He's done tariffs, he's pro-union, he's doing the kind of economic populism that, you know, Americans desperately need. How could he sort of steal that playbook from Bernie a little bit. Well, I mean, the irony is he has, right? I mean, that's the thing. Right. The legislation, but the advertising it. I mean, that's the irony. That's why Bernie endorsed him early, right? Because Bernie feels like Biden's done a great job on the policy front and, you know, so Bernie's behind him. It's 
tough because Biden is who he is and he got elected president for being who he is, right? Which is kind of a, a steady hand in stormy weather, right? And so, you know, he can't really embrace his inner Bernie and, and be Bernie. So I look, I do think though that advertising matters, right? Telling story over paid communication, whether digital TV ads matters and it takes time. I mean, if you look at, you know, the presidential primary 2020, I mean, we, Bernie has a very compelling economic message, but look at our TV ads. I mean, we, we really focused on economic messages in the primary and that's where we'll win the first three states. So resoundingly, and if you look at Biden campaign, they had limited resources and they were very biocentric about, you know, Biden's story and they were kind of light on economics. And I think that's one reason we were so successful at the beginning of that primary. But look, I think they're starting to talk about the economy that Biden and his team are. Um, and again, it's going to have a, as the incumbent, if people aren't feeling great about the economy, if you're saying how great the economy is, it's going to meet some resistance, but he's going to highlight his accomplishments, highlight all the jobs he's creating with manufacturing infrastructure bill and the chips bill and tell us a compelling story and contrast that with Trump's, you know, economic record, which is basically a big tax cut for big corporations. So that's how he's going to become populist. Look, I mean, Barack Obama, wasn't a populist, sounded like a populist when he ran for re-election in 2012 because it was against Mitt Romney, who was a plutocrat, and it, it was an effective strategy. So I think the Biden folks and Biden will are coming around to that. But but also Biden, look, he can't, he's Scranton Joe. I mean, he, he does have these working class roots. So he does have the ability to connect with working class people. And he just has to channel that as best he can in his own voice. That's the other thing. He he can't get up there and sound like Bernie because then it, everyone knows it's not, that's not who Joe Biden is. But in his own way, as Grant and Joe and, and through policy accomplishments and, and highlighting Trump's true economic record, which is massive tax cuts for big corporations and the wealthy. And while Joe Biden's trying to bring jobs back from China, manufacturing jobs and high tech jobs, and he'll have a compelling story to tell, but it, it's just going to take a while to tell it. Thank you so much, Ben. Really interesting. Yeah, sure thing. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly, drop them fast. Those Republicans are in disarray, and I think it's always funny because we often make a joke about that, but what else do you call this? They can't get the rules vote passed, and a rules <laughs> vote is like a very standard, you know, like what kind of paper should we write this on? Since 1995, the House has failed to pass rules eight times, all under GOP control, McCarthy has failed three times in the last eight months, including twice this week. Congratulations, Kevin McCarthy. You are our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. Right, let's go. 
But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.